Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening to both of us. This is what you are currently hearing. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, where I am currently seated in an ergonomically designed chair. Uh, all's well. I'm happy to be talking with you. I'm happy to be alive and at large. I feel uh, feel as though time is of the essence. I have a strong sense of that at this current moment. I feel like uh, I can I can feel how it is running out. I'm having a small existential crisis, and it seems important to recognize that the clock is ticking. We will all be gone relatively soon. The planet is hurtling through space. Time is marching forward relentlessly, and as such, we should all smile in a somewhat satisfied manner as we breathe, as we respirate. So uh, what else? Uh, Amazon just bought Goodreads. I don't know if you saw that story in the news. Amazon.com, uh, the behemoth online retail corporate mega giant, has purchased Goodreads 
the beloved, beloved, the beloved literary social media juggernaut. So it was purchased for an undisclosed sum that experts in the news are uh, suggesting is somewhere in the realm of $800 million to $1 billion. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's what I just read online. So, uh, of course, I believe it, and uh, I'm reporting it to you. And this transaction is causing a stir in book world. Many uh, many people seem to be upset, uh, at, least, you know, at least the ones that I've been uh, reading online. They seem disgruntled. People in the blogosphere, I've been looking at their responses, sifting through reactions in the news, and uh, most of them seem heated. People are voicing their concerns. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I don't really care all that much currently. My emo- you know, my emotional response is minimal so far. Uh, for one thing, I don't use Goodreads. So my data is not really there to be mined. Uh, I mean, I have, a, I have a Goodreads account, but I just don't use it. Which is not an indictment of Goodreads. Uh, I just don't have the time or the inclination or the energy to do it. You know, I can't maintain it. And uh, as far as Amazon goes, the business of publishing, all that stuff, you know, this is the trend, right? What are you going to do? I'm exhausted by it. Feels like just this giant rock just rolling down the hill. You know, and part of me thinks, well, you know, one of the big publishers in New York could have bought Goodreads, but they didn't. And if they did, then people would probably be bitching about, uh, you know, how Bertelsmann or Viacom now owns Goodreads. But instead, uh, Amazon bought it, and they will almost certainly use Goodreads to mine your data and to generate Kindle sales and to promote their own authors and uh, to enlarge in, uh, is that a word? To grow their share of the publishing pie. It's another power play by Amazon, and probably a shrewd one. You know, in an in an unrelenting quest to be the last giant standing in the book business. So I was just reading an essay by Steve Almond, the uh, the writer about this particular thing. He's a thoughtful guy, uh, has a good brain, and he was talking about Amazon and he was talking about the enormous number of small presses, independent small presses that have sprouted up over the past several years. And in his essay, he essentially presented a landscape that includes Amazon as this growing giant and then the old school publishers in New York as uh, dinosaurs who are increasingly adopting the blockbuster model, uh, the blockbuster model of uh, movie studios in an effort to survive and to stave off extinction. Uh, And then you have the small independent presses uh, who exist uh, metaphorically as, as, you know, furry mammals small furry mammals foraging for sustenance on the jungle floor, publishing literary fiction and nonfiction for a relatively small audience or something to that effect. And, you know, I think that's generally uh, somewhat right when it comes to the literary side of the ledger in particular. It's a niche product. Literature is a niche product. It is peripheral in our culture. And uh, I'm, I'm talking literary fiction, literary nonfiction. And right now, it would seem that most of the vital action in this particular niche is happening on the periphery. It's happening on the uh, jungle floor. 
I certainly feel like a small mammal myself. I feel like a, like a chinchilla <laughs> or uh, perhaps a meerkat. And I think I'm at the point where I'm sort of done getting upset about this stuff. Like wh- what can I do to stop Amazon? Do I even want to stop Amazon? I shop at Amazon sometimes. I have to admit that most of us do while we simultaneously bitch about it. It's, you know, it's easy. It works. Uh, and then you feel guilty about it sometimes because someone tells you a horror story or you read something terrible or you have some vague understanding of corporate malfeasance and the squeezing of independent bookstores and so on. Uh, but then, you know, for me, uh, I'll be there and then my head will then go to uh, wise men and wise women of the world, like actual authentic wise people who write books containing great wisdom and who live their lives with great integrity and intelligence or seemingly so. And uh, these people, their books are on sale at Amazon. It's not like you see them pulling, uh, you know, their, their titles from the, sh- uh, the storefront at amazon.com and taking some sort of bold, uh, moral stand. So, you know, it's, it's like wh- whatever bad stuff Amazon may or may not be doing. It's not like it's bad enough to get some of the best and brightest human beings on planet earth. Uh, to refuse participation is what I'm saying. So if it's good enough for them, is it good enough for the rest of us? That seems like a relevant question. I don't know. It makes me sleepy to think about it. Like, uh, I don't know. It's like a conversation that's been playing on a loop for like the past six years or something. And frankly, for me, you know, when it comes to writing any kind of book, At this point, it has to be done purely for fun, on the side, with no hope of ever making any significant money. And if any significant money actually does get made, it's just a happy accident. And that's it. (laughs) You know, and I say this as somebody with uh, an admittedly odd literary sensibility. I feel I have an odd sensibility. I feel like I'm a person with tastes and creative tendencies that seem for whatever reason to fall outside of the mainstream. And so with that in mind, you know, if somebody buys a book of mine at Goodreads for the Kindle, or if somebody buys the paperback in an independent bookstore in Seattle, either way, it's probably going to be a situation where that's like one of like, say 500 uh, transactions, 500 readers who actually buy the book, which is great. You know, that's wonderful. 500 people, uh, it, that's a lot of people, but it's ultimately at the, you know, at the end of the day, it's about, uh, when, you know, when it comes to the bottom line, it's about a thousand dollars or something, which is a good amount of money, but you know, let's face it. It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna change your life. So I don't know. I don't know. That's my opinion. My opinion is that I have no strong opinion at this juncture. It seems bleak, Uh, it seems somewhat bleak, and it seems ordinary, and I personally do not know enough to know what the ultimate effect will be, and as such, I would prefer at this time to ignore it, (laughs) and to continue on with my day as a small furry mammal, metaphorically speaking. Hey everybody, if you are a writer, or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is uh, Amity Gage. Her new novel, Schroeder, has been generating incredible buzz. It was, it's, it was blurbed by the likes of Jennifer Egan and Jonathan Franzen, and it has been glowingly reviewed pretty much across the board. So it's great to have her here on the program and to get a chance to talk with her uh, as her star is rising. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Amity Gage, and her new novel, once again, is called Schroeder. I'm sitting in my office at Amherst College, overlooking the same view that the founding fathers of Amherst College overlooked when they came here. And it's a beautiful view of the um, some mountains. <laughs> I don't remember their proper name, but um, a mountain range, the Holyoke Mountain Range. Oh, you do remember. See, like I'm always, <laughs> I, I forget everything about like like what things are named in my immediate. You know, I live in Los Angeles. I couldn't tell you the name of anything. It's terms. just like flat and pretty there, right? <laughs> those, now, are, those are the hills, and those are the trees. <laughs> and I know palm trees. You know, that's about it. Well, it's pretty here too, but in a much more gothic way and um it's right now it's overcast big billowy dark clouds and um it's a big high ceilinged office and my feet are up on the desk and i'm pretty comfortable god okay so and and amherst has sort of like a decorated i mean it's a it's a great college but it also has some like you know some literary history that's like david foster wallace turf like does his um, does his uh, legend sort of hang over that place it does. It does. You said, it's funny when you said it has literary history. I thought you meant Robert Frost, <laughs> because he's really he's really the the poet father. Um, you know, there's a statue of him um, really close to my office, and in fact, Richard Wilbur, the poet, uh, still teaches here. He's 91 years old, and Richard Wilbur, when um, he talks about Robert Frost, calls him Bob. <laughs> wow. That's uh, that's how old he is. And um, you mean Dick Wilbur calls Robert Frost Bob? Is that right? Bob. Yeah. Bob, yeah, um, uh, but but then of course there's Emily Dickinson who um, it just her house is just around the street from my own and it's a beautiful beautiful house um, and it makes you understand why she was a recluse because you you know it's so pretty um, but then uh, DFW absolutely I mean he he influences my students work a lot and <clears throat> he uh, he clearly speaks to them so much especially to the the boys, really, but um, he was so smart, I think, and so conflicted uh, that they they relate to that. They relate to being a little bit too smart for their own good, and he got that into fiction. So I think that they do. He is a he's a huge influence. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because I read, I had DT Max on this show and he did the, the uh, DFW biography and like, yeah, you know, I'd read uh, some of David's work and I had also, um, I don't know, I was, I, I was a big fan, especially of the, the essays and stuff. Those really hit me hard. But yeah. I was interested in reading about his life at Amherst, uh, just how competitive the academic environment was. And then also mm. like just how extraordinary he was within that environment and how everyone knew it when he was there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it, it, wasn't exactly. like he, it wasn't like he was a secret. Like he was the best student in a school full of best students. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of his pain, you know? <laughs> kind of being some kind of a creature. Uh, well, he, yeah, he was, uh, he did theses in both, was it philosophy and, and English? And it's just, the students who do one fall apart. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and so, so students now, they think, they really think that the more pages you submit, the more important you are as a writer. <laughs> I think it's one of his unfortunate legacies is they want to have really big, big theses, you know. Um, not that his was, but that, um, you know, a bigger book means it's more important. Right, the maximalist kind of Yeah, approach. yeah. So, and, you know, you said something about how he really appeals to the boys. And I thought, you know, it's interesting because I'm obviously a boy and I have like, <laughs> I feel like I have like a favorites list of writers that is very boyish. Mm-hmm. And now that I have a daughter, I've started to try to like reassess those tendencies and also read a little bit more widely so that I have a better understanding. And I, I've, been o- I've been over this on the podcast that I've had guests on the show who were, I, I had on in, in kind of a specific way, wanting to talk to them about gender politics and things like that, yeah, you know. Right, right. But when you, when you teach and you are around young people, um, obviously of both genders, like, do you, I mean, you can notice, like, who the girls tend to like and who the boys tend to like. And I guess a question I would ask is, are there any authors that you notice who cross over and who have both male and female appeal? Ooh, that's a tough question. Yeah, I mean, because I can't, I mean, my brain went there quickly and I couldn't. You know, well, okay, the first person who comes to mind is George Saunders. Right. Interesting. He seems, um, he seems like a guy, he seems like someone I would think the guys gravitate towards, but, but females too. They respond to his his stories. Yeah, I mean, he, his his oeuvre is not so large. He, you know, I mean, he's got these exquisite stories that I find that both the the female and male students relate to. But that's just the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, it's a great question. Flannery, um, Flannery O'Connor. Oh well, Flannery O'Connor, of course. I feel like she's, she's got she's got like crossover with guys too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. She said, "Yeah, the the Old Testament God, Flannery O'Connor. Um, I love her. Uh, her. Her. I taught a class at Mount Holyoke on women, angry women in literature, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it actually didn't go over that well. <laughs> but but um, I." I taught Flannery O'Connor in that course, actually, because not because she has many women characters. She does, but it's not that her characters are angry, but that, you know, she's an angry author. Um, and I responded to that differently. Um, I had some Sylvia Plath in there, too. So anyway, I'm familiar with angry women. Uh, you know, I'd have to think about that more, Brad. I don't know. What, what did you find in your reading? Like, what have you been reading more of to make you understand what it is to be a woman better? Well, I mean, God, now like, uh, I'm trying to think of who I, I had. Leslie Arfin on. She wrote on the show Girls, and she wrote a book called Dear Diary. Uh-huh. And then I had somebody else on, and like in my here, here's my brain, like not working. But I had another author on. Oh no, I had Kate Zambrino on, who wrote a book called Heroines, 
which okay. I really liked, which was about the wives of the modernists, like T.S. Eliot's oh, wife. Oh, I would love that kind of book. Yeah. I love literary biography. It's like my favorite, secret favorite yeah. genre. Yeah, me too. And it's this one's like, it's, it's like literary collage biography, so it works uh-huh. in, in these short bursts. And then it also is like a really bracingly candid memoir as well. So it's oh. sort of an odd, hard-to-classify book, but it, it was an eye-opener because it shows... Um, it, you know, it just kind of, I didn't realize how bad these women had it. And I didn't realize yeah. how women who tried to break down barriers, um, were treated horribly and institutionalized and this, that, mm. and the other. And, you know, it's just like, mm. holy shit. And, and you also realize how truly gifted a lot of them were or probably were, and they just never had a chance to, you know, find its proper expression. So, oh man, I got an email just the other day from a professor friend who's probably in her 60s at she's a, at the University of Massachusetts. She sent me an email. She had seen the book reviewed in the New York Times, and it was such a moving um, email. She said something pretty simple, but it was like, um, I just had a baby. I have a six-month-old daughter. Oh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, and then, of course, the book, Charter, just came out, and she said, I was so made me feel so happy to see a woman with a baby and a book, and it made me feel like the things we fought for were were actually coming to pass. And it meant so much to me that email because oh. I mean my mother was in that not certain the generation of the wives of the modernists, but um, a generation where it was even for her it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been. Uh, it would be hard for her to be in my situation. So, well, that's that. That's what's yeah. that's what's crazy to think about too, is because it's easy to sort of just take it as normal that like, oh yeah, women write books now and it's normal and they're right. But you know, it's like my you know my my mother's generation. Like when you're a young woman coming into the work world, it was like teach or be a secretary. Uh, and it was very yeah, and it was very unusual for a woman to sort of uh, put a stake in the ground and say, oh, "I'm going to be an author," you know. Or, I know. So. Well, I think it's amazing you're trying to learn more about that because you have a daughter. That's that's so beautiful. Well, I'm <laughs> just terrified. I, I know. I, yeah, your, your your motivation is fear. That's fine. Yeah, whatever works. <laughs> um, my I have a son, too, a seven year old son, and you know when I found out I was going to have a boy, I was actually pretty psyched because. I don't know, it was different. He was going to be different, obviously different from me, which I found to be kind of a consolation. Well, <laughs> and and boy, uh, boys love their mothers. They love Well, they, I guess, apparently. <laughs> I feel that way all the time. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, he's going through a non, no kissing phase. Like, I'm just not allowed to kiss him. So it's a good thing I have a baby. <laughs> yeah, she exactly. doesn't have a choice. Yeah. Um, but um, when my son was born, I, I was pretty psyched to, to kind of like push around cars. And, you know, when he was two, three, four, all the all those cars sounds you make. And I learned how to sound like a machine. And it was just <laughs> all so other and really fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah so you'll be you'll be playing princess and stuff. Oh, It'll be God. awesome. Oh, I'm already <laughs> I'm already there. Like I'm doing all sorts of things I never thought I would do. But I find that often when parent, you know, especially for a first child, you know, you you talk, you, know, you find out you're going to have a kid, and then usually the conversation is from the the woman. It's like I want a boy, and the guy's like, oh, I want a girl. Or I guess that's not always. Oh, the really? Well, that's how it was for us. Maybe it's not the yeah. case. I feel like men sometimes want sons to like go hunting with or whatever. But uh, <laughs> I wanted a I wanted a little girl, and my wife wanted mm-hmm. a little boy. And I think for me, it felt like less pressure 
to have a girl yeah. because it's like then it's not like if it's a boy then it's like how do I teach him how to be a man if it's a girl then I just get to be like the cool dad and just it's so true you should see my daughter gaze at my husband it's like he's just like a hero I mean just for walking in the door it's amazing yeah I mean like yeah like last night like what was it we were sitting at dinner and I was like coloring we were out at a restaurant and I was coloring on the little thing that they give the kids to color with, with crayons. Mm-hmm. And my daughter looks at me like apropos of nothing. And she's like, good job, daddy. I love you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, Aww. oh, you're my favorite. Yeah. That's a big <laughs> awe moment. But I, I literally did get a little choked up. I was like, thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> you know? So those are, those are good moments. It's wonderful. Uh, Oh, by the way, I'm staring at, by the way, I'm staring at Jennifer Egan's book, A A Visit from the Goon Squad. She's somebody I've admired for a long time. And that book, that book was like a, not a college-wide read, but a bunch of classes read it in the English department last year. And I would definitely say that was as interesting to the female as male students. Getting back to your question. Yeah, no, that needs to happen more. Like, that's the thing about me that, like, I sort of got bummed out of by you know when it came to my proclivities as a reader is that like i was mm. just so so predictable it was like oh mm. i like i started with hemingway and i liked mm. fitzgerald and i liked bukowski and i read yeah. celine and it was just like okay and me and every other dude in my demographic with the same kind of like background or whatever and it just it, it struck me that like a i needed to read about more female experiences because i'm now parenting one but also just like mm-hmm. just to, as a person i need to read more widely and get out of my own little range, you know? Right. No, I I think that for some of my male students that their writing would improve definitely if they, if they did that. And also, but for me as a woman, I grew up on the same stuff because we don't have in the canon, there's not a representative amount of women. So you grew up reading boy stuff too. Um, You just don't really, you don't feel it quite the same way that a, a boy would. But I, I'm glad that I've read all of those things that you've read, too, because that's great literature. Well, and, and I, I, gonna, I, and I, I gonna, wanted to learn how well, to do that. And, and it, also, you know, it also, because you're sort of forced by circumstance to read outside of your wheelhouse, it actually strengthens you as a writer. And it should be noted that you write very deftly uh, with the male protagonist. You know, which we, <laughs> thank you. And, and like and like getting inside the male psyche, which is probably somewhat related to that, right? Uh, probably, probably. I occasionally I, I just kind of grimace because I, I w- one answer I can give to this is that you know my husband, who I've been with for a long, long, long time, um, he's uh, he's a very articulate person, and he, he's totally willing to confess every. Every thought he has, uh, not every thought he has, but lots of thoughts he has in, um, about what it is to be a man. And uh, so I think he kind of, he let me, he let me into some of the secrets of, of, the, of the brotherhood. Of the brotherhood. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's like skull and bones, like you actually got to go. Yeah, I know, I know. So I hope he doesn't get in trouble with the, gr- with the group. <laughs> right. Not. He's going um, to get branded. <laughs> but, you know, I see in my son, too, of course, yeah, this place, there's men all over the place. And um, I, I have a, been observing them for quite some time. Um, but I, I have a lot of sympathy for men. I, I, I you know, I'm not an angry feminist, not that feminists are angry. I mean, I'm not a, a woman who is angry at men in particular. Um, I, I've, I had a loving father, um, and I, of course... Um, I feel that I've had some very positive male mentors and of course, female ones too. But, uh, I think that could just be the luck of the draw, but I'm sure that it is actually, but it means that 
I, uh, you know, when writing in a male voice, I, I come to it sympathetically. I mean, I, I have, I have sympathy with, with certain of the male, I, what I perceive as male issues. Um, what are you, some, what are some male issues? Uh, I thought you might ask that. <laughs> I was like, oh, please, shit, not have to actually help me. Help me. <laughs> Well, I feel that there's a certain the, the the attention that a man wants and often gets just from being a man, as opposed to say a woman, um, is uh, something of of a burden. There, I think there's a lot of ego issues for men that aren't necessarily there for women. They're certainly there around certain things, um, but. A man's kind of sense of wanting to be exceptional, wanting to be a leader, strong, um, it sucks, competent. Man. It sucks, man. All that stuff. <laughs> especially at this age. Especially at this age. Like, I feel the pressure of that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And to be measured in these measurable ways. It, 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 there's a completely cliche explanation of procreation. You know, a woman can have a child. You can bear a child. And after you bear a child, you're never... You, you never feel you need to prove yourself again. You know, you've kind of created life. There's certain truth to that. But, um, you know, a man is always feeling, I think, that he needs to prove himself and measure himself. Um, and I think that is a burden. I, I feel I feel for that. I feel for you. Yeah. Thank you. I need some sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like that, that, that's sort of what I'm talking about when it, with regard to, like, reading more widely or getting a better and more... Um, a deeper empathy with the other gender, you know, because yeah. there are really superficial and, and not that there isn't truth to these sort of stock uh, analyses of the genders, but it's like, yeah. you know, we would, I think both men and women would be well served by understanding what it is that we each go through. I do agree with that. I do agree with that. Now, if you ask me what the woman suffers from, like in universal woman, I, I actually, I don't know if I could tell you. So I don't know if I can answer that question. Why? I don't know. I don't really know. I think because I've lived so long as with the concept of myself as a as a writer and as an outsider that I feel like I don't belong to a group. If I get into a group of women who want to like complain about the same thing, I often find myself out of step and that makes me feel you know, a little bad. You know, like it's I, it's funny that you say that because I think that's I think that's a very common because I feel the same way. Like I, you do. Good. Well, I think writers in general. Like if I get mm-hmm. around a group of women, I don't feel like I belong. But um, <laughs> no, but you, you wanna, don't. No, you want to. Yeah, but you want to know the truth, though. If I'm at a party mm-hmm. and there's a uh, hundred people there, right? I will often be with a group of women as opposed to being like with the guys in the basement, like shooting pool. I don't. Know, I don't know what yeah. that means. But uh, yeah, I also feel like it's very common for writers to. Um, and actually, by the way, that makes me smart. Like, why why hang out with all the guys? Go hang out with the women. There you go. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that uh, writers often feel like outsiders, and that's why we're writers. I think that, it, you know, I've talked to a lot of writers who feel that way. It's very hard to feel yeah. a, a part of something and to be grouped together and, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. And, and also to figure out how you fit into a group situation can be difficult for people who are, have this leaning, you know? <laughs> I I agree. I'm glad that you find that across the people that you've talked to. I I feel that a writer needs to be typical of yet yet alone within her time and place. Do you know what I mean? So 
you have to be somewhat, you can't be so exceptional, crazy outside that you can't speak to the current times in a way. Right. Well, no, it's um, like, it's like, I remember reading a quote from, I think it was Don DeLillo mm-hmm. and he was talking about how the writer of his time or her time needs to be on the margin. It can't be in like, you can't be in like the epicenter of the culture. No, yeah. right. It's so true. Yes. Yes. And this is why one shouldn't watch too much TV. <laughs> right. Or, or I guess it also could serve as like an, a nice, um, a nice way of combating the feeling of fear that one might have regarding the peripheralization of literature. Like maybe people who write and who make literature aren't supposed to be at the center of culture. Maybe it's better. I don't know. Yeah. That, no. that might be a justification, but um, I, mm-hmm. you know, it makes some sense that like we, you know, writers should kind of exist on the margins, and then if a book winds up making its way closer to the center of the culture, it's because of some coincidence. Coincidence, or it's extraordinary, you know, or it mm. says something so extraordinary that like the word of mouth just gets hot and it goes. But you know, it's a, uh, it's maybe a natural place, I guess, for a writer to be is like on the outside looking in, sort of. I know. I think that you have to write from that place without trying to desperately claw your way into the epicenter. And I think that, yes, you can land in the epicenter, I mean, for your for your brief moments of fame. Um, but it's not because you were trying. You know, so if you have to write a book, I think you have to write the book that's that's that, that's in you, that's been thrust upon you by the forces in your childhood and your biology you know you have to write you have to write that book it may or may not be something that the mainstream is interested in but you don't really have a choice you know so occasionally you might write something that that the the, i don't say the mainstream i mean i'm in the mainstream but um the main army the, the the epicenter is is interested in you know well, and this book, I mean, uh, Schroeder, the new one, has, has gotten a lot of buzz, and a lot of people are calling it your breakout book. It's it's your third novel, correct? That's correct, yeah. So, I mean, do you feel that, and do you find yourself surprised by how much uh, excitement it's generated and how well it's been doing? Yeah, I'm I'm surprised. I'm just I'm just tickled. I'm still, when it occurs to me, I'm still just just amused and happy. Um, you didn't see this coming. I, I didn't see it coming. At the same time, I, I will say that when I finished it, I said to myself, that's the book you wanted to write. And that was a great feeling. I didn't. I actually didn't go onward from that of like, is that the book people want to read? <laughs> like, I, didn't, I didn't ask myself that question. Probably healthier. But, <laughs> yes. That, but, that, um, but it was the book you wanted to write. And when it, the process of writing Schroeder was so fun, actually, and I know it's sort of a harrowing, a harrowing book. Um, my friend said to me the other day, she said, oh, Amity, I loved your book. It was such a, it was sheer, sheer traumatizing pleasure to read it. <laughs> um, so I know that it might feel that way to read it. And um, at times it was harrowing to write it too, but um it was fun. Uh, Eric was was fun to be around, and he was amusing and ambitious and emotional. And um, his his confession was fun for me to try to figure out his past, his his historical past, 
And um, well, can we just stop for a second, yeah. just so listeners can get like a, I mean, just give like the, the sure. basics of the plot and what he, who he is, and what he does, just so that we can get an idea. Yeah, Eric Sh- Eric Schroeder is his real name, and the book is called Schroeder, but he lives by the name Eric Kennedy, and this is a name he, um, a persona he made up for himself when he was only fourteen. Um, because he was this um, heavily accented German immigrant in Norchester, Mass, and didn't want to be picked on and made fun of anymore, and he wanted to apply to a boys' camp in this um, idyllic woods of New Hampshire. So he makes up an identity, um, Eric Kennedy. Of course, he chooses Kennedy partially because um, he lives in Boston, and um, they accept him as that, and he never really denies the kind of Kennedy connection that he may be distantly, distantly related. And he goes on and marries a woman and has a child, and, and they never know that this was his fantasy persona, and he loses touch with his father. And the book itself is um, centered around um, a week that on the road that he spends with his daughter, um, who he's basically lost custody of after his divorce with his wife. And um, his wife divorces him for a number of reasons, but not because he's a fraud. Okay, so where, um, where did this come from? That idea? Yeah, like where do you know? I mean, you obviously you have to have some idea, but I mean, where did, where did all this, uh, what's the origin of how you came oh, to write this? Yeah, the, you know, the, there's, there's so many ways I can answer that. There's so many different influences. And at this point, um, you know, I feel like I could answer it five different ways. Which which way? Which genre of answer do you want? Like literal, well, <laughs> metaphorical, I, like I've read, literary. I've read some. Yeah, I mean, I've, I would love to hear all of them. But it's like I, I read in some reviews that there was like you know one of the seedlings of the book was the story of Christian uh, Gerhardt's writer. Is that how I yeah, pronounce it? Yeah, that's right. And I, I, that one really struck me because I was totally obsessed with that whole story when it was out. Oh, were you? Yeah. I, mean, like, you? I was like, I read everything about that guy that was in the press because uh-huh. I went through a phase where I, you know, I'm, I continue to be very fascinated, but there was a phase where I was extremely fascinated in cons and in people who are, ex, you know, very, very gifted con artists and actors yeah. because it occurred to me that, like you know, I, I think we're all amazed when somebody is an, uh, gives an extraordinary performance as an actor. You know, yeah. somebody yeah. Can, can inhabit the character of somebody else, and it's seamless, yeah. and you forget who's who, and it takes you over. And um, you know, those people who win Academy Awards and are in the movies or whatever are one thing. But then, uh, thinking about it as somebody who's doing it on the fly in real life, yeah. in, in an unscripted situation, like uh, like. And in, in possibly in criminal circumstances, yeah, people who are able to do that really fascinate me because, you know, while what they do might not be um, that awesome in terms mm-hmm. of the law mm-hmm. or whatever else or mm-hmm. morality, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's extraordinary acting. It's like a work of art. Yes, it's like performance art. Right, and so that was obviously part of the genesis of Schroeder for you. Yeah, I don't know if I really understand a typical con man, because in some ways I made Eric so different from that guy whose name I can't even pronounce, but the guy who called himself Clark Clark Rockefeller, I made Eric so different from him in the sense that I made him not, he doesn't really get a thrill out of pretending to be someone else. It's more that he just doesn't want himself. And so I have a very specific way of interpreting why Eric does it, but I don't know if it applies to somebody else like the Clark Rockefeller case because it seems like that guy had so many different identities that it was it was it was fun and illicit for him to 
to do that. I could see how it would be fun. It's very dangerous. Yeah, well, and just so, and so listeners know, like this guy Christian Gerhardt's writer, he pretended to be a guy named Clark Rockefeller, like a member of the yeah. Rockefeller clan, and he wound up like all over the world and going to fancy parties and like, you know, exactly. he he pulled it off for a long time, you know? Yeah, he did. He did. Um, I'll tell you something funny. This is not answering your question because that's basically all I have to say about it. I, I did, uh, I, I definitely borrowed, um, seedling is a good word. The immigrant iconic American name, and divorce <laughs> and those three like elements I really needed to tell the story that I was already really trying to tell, which was really a story about identity and marriage and parenthood. Um, because that, the Clark Rockefeller guy, he um, kidnaps his daughter um, and takes her on the road and is eventually apprehended. Um, so, um, you know, that, that was a similar scenario, but, um, was the story I wanted to tell. I have a friend who's a therapist and he has a client who's a sex addict and um, he gave this man my book and apparently this man came back who wasn't much of a reader. He came back and um, said it had totally made him see the light <laughs> that he didn't want to do what he was doing anymore, which was basically deceiving his family for a sex addiction that was totally secret for a long time. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. Um, I thought it was a huge compliment that my book could actually help an addict, you know, but it made him see this, the stakes of the dangerous game that he was playing and what he could really lose. Because for Eric, what, what he, what his real, the real danger is, is that he's going to lose contact with Meadow, his little girl who's six in the course of the story. And she's all he really has because his life has been built on such on a lie. Innocently enough, it started, but it, it was a lie. Um, and then he was divorced by his wife. And then he has this beautiful little girl. And um, are you there? Yeah, I'm listening. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry. You said first that you're wrapped. Okay, great. Because you said you, it, it might drop. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, so he's he's in danger of of, of losing this um, this beautiful girl, and you know he he really messes up. You you got to read the book. Yeah, well, you know it's like it's interesting. To, well, first of all, like you talked about your friend who's a shrink, and um, and then you have Eric, this character who's got like this kind of uh, you know psychological bearing or whatever, and it's a really psychologically astute book. I mean, clearly if, if somebody's like turning their life around after reading it, like you're getting into the, the weeds and, and you're hitting some, some truths, you know, mm-hmm. and you're, mm-hmm. you're holding up a mirror to people, but like how much study of psychology and how astute are you on this stuff? Do you know what I'm saying? In terms like yeah. how much of it is intuitive and how much did you explicitly like dig in and do research on in an effort to try to understand Oh, I- identity yeah. and stuff like that. I didn't. I didn't do much research, so I guess that just sort of speaks to the issues I deal with in my own life. But I, <laughs> I, I, you know, my my life is my research. I also watch other people very closely. Um, people close to me know this, and um, people I meet. Um, so, are you a quick? Re- are you a quick read of people? I like to think so. I don't know. I think it's one of my few talents. Yeah. Um, I am pretty good judgment, but it's not, you're not asking about judgment. You're asking about, um, understanding certain things about them almost like empathically. That's, um, that's, I find that's like, I mean, I can sometimes do that. I think writers can often do that in a way like, 
here's what let me let me present a scenario to you. Have mm-hmm. you, and you can tell me if this has ever been the case for you. Like, have you ever mm-hmm. met somebody or been around somebody for a relatively short amount of time, and uh, somehow known something very specific about them that yeah. seems almost impossible for you to have known otherwise? It, you do. Yeah. Well, can, do you have an example of that? Because because how can you be sure that you're right? I mean, I've gotten senses from people, but not confirmed. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've had, well, I mean, I've had confirmations. Like I, You've had confirmations. Where it's like I knew something, like they're, like a friend of mine or somebody I knew mm-hmm. uh, or somebody I just met and I'm like, something happened to them and it was this. And then later I find out that- And you'd be true. right. Yes. And so, and it's like you're working from, I guess you're working from pieces. Do you know what I'm saying? You're getting like this kind of fractalized input and then somehow it's just assembling itself. I don't know. I don't want to make it sound too magical or too consistent because it's not like I can do this with everybody, but I have had that experience and I don't think it's necessarily um, normal. And I think it's somewhat no. somewhat writerly. And I think that's, I don't know. I, I think in another place in time, you'd be like some kind of intuitive, you know, yeah, you'd, have a, you'd have a little practice somewhere and people <laughs> but, be coming to you. But that's what it is. It's just intuition and, and empathy or whatever, you know. Well, I remember I re- my image of childhood is is not, I'm not aware of my own body. I'm only aware of what I'm looking at. I don't have any memories of myself in my childhood. I only remember other people. And I think I just spent a long, a lot of time looking and studying and, you know, with my, my antenna up. And so, yes, I think that if the writer is born with that kind of temperament as a child, you get a lot of practice doing that. And then you bring, you know, maybe, maybe you did the same thing. So. Yeah, maybe, you know, and I, I feel like, I feel, I feel like I, I was thinking about my childhood and just like me staring at myself in the mirror. <laughs> okay, that's my problem. Um, so speaking of childhood, where, where, were you, where did you grow up? Well, I moved around a lot. I, I didn't, um, have a real solid sense of home, except for in Morristown, New Jersey, um, where I was quite happy for probably about six or seven years um, before I moved to Reading, Pennsylvania when I was 12. And um, I like, moved. It sounds like my childhood. I moved too. So. Oh, see, there you go. I mean, that we, we should get together. We should we should hang out, <laughs> right. brother. Right. There you are. But it makes you it makes you an observer, you know, especially when you're entering yeah. when you're entering new environments and you're trying to like assimilate, you know. Yeah, it does. It teaches you a lot of things. It certainly teaches you loneliness. Not like one has to learn that. But, it just teaches um, you how to be lonely and ostracized. <laughs> how to be lonely and friendless. I still, yeah, I still can't go into a cafeteria without feeling like... Oh, <laughs> I know the smell. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, where to sit? Where do I sit? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I know. So, yeah, I was really, I was unhappy moving around. Um, Why did you move? Was his dad's job? My, my father was, yeah, my father was in a, well, he was an administrator, college administrator. And he was moving up the ladder, so he started as a professor, moved, then moved into as a dean, and then you know, then then eventually to a president. So um, we we moved around following following him, and uh, so yeah, that's that's it. And is it, now I'm I'm very happy in New England. I I feel like this is a, a lovely home for me. So do you have like are you like solidly rooted in Amherst? Is that what... no no. 
You're like, we're moving next year. But, uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, we, um, I mean, I, I absolutely love my position here at Amherst, um, but it's a, it's a visiting position. Oh, okay. um, it's, yeah. So who, who knows? But I mean, part of me wants to go, I, I'd like to go to India and I, I want to try to go to India. And live there? Um, well, temporarily, <laughs> because I don't want to raise my children there, but yeah. something like that would be, would be wonderful. Damn, that um, sounds good. Do you have any, like, are you, is that, are you trying to put that into motion or no? No. Okay. But it could, like, yeah. so if anyone out there is listening to India, <laughs> please contact Amity immediately. <laughs> she wants to live in Calcutta immediately with her family. No, not Calcutta. <laughs> Well, see, that's the thing. Like, you think of India, and like, there's obviously like, I, I, I've heard from friends of mine who have gone there that like, it's an extraordinary place, and like, it, yeah, see, there you go. And you really, it's a like, it, you can't go there and not have like a big experience because the country is yeah. so vibrant, and there's like, the poverty is like so um, intense, and then yeah. the beauty is so intense, and so you have, you know, you're swinging wildly between all of these different things, and then the people, and the yeah. culture. But, um, yeah. It's a place I want to go to. I don't know if I could get my wife to go. Like you know, right, like, right. I'm, especially I'm, with the little one. Yeah, I'm, I'm the guy that like well, you know I would go camping. Like she's not a camper. You know, it's it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a good balance. You know, but I, I'll have to get her to India at some point. Some. <laughs> um, so, let's get back to and then as far as childhood goes, like you said, you were unhappy moving around, but. Were you uh, good socially? Like, did you find a way, or were you kind of really to yourself and reading and like, I don't know, you know, totally isolated? <laughs> right, right, a geek. A geek. Um, just say it. Yeah, well, were you, Amity, <laughs> will you please go on the record? Were you a nerd in high school? You know, I wasn't, but I, um, I think that's just because I, again, I was studying. I, I just remember studying people and being like, "Oh, that's how you get people to like you. Oh, that's how yes. you, that, what not to do." Um, yes. And I think I just kind of learned how to be um, socially acceptable. But I, I was um, not so much of a of a reader as a child. Interestingly, I, I began as a writer and I wrote. As soon as I could, as soon as I could do it, and wrote stories and poems and drawings, and so I spent large chunks of time writing, and I was quite happy then. So, though I was, um, you know, I did feel lonely uh, moving around and um, not feeling um, like I was a joiner, but I was very consoled by writing and. Um, did that a lot through through high school even so like jur- bad poetry and journaling that kind of thing bad no, I, <laughs> no. <You're> like what <laughs> how you dare think my you? poetry is bad <laughs> no um i was it was it was a child's poetry and so yes by measurable standards it, it was bad but i think that the one thing it demonstrated was um was an interest in others and an interest in what it felt like to be other people and i would try to write you know bad liberal leaning poetry about homelessness and, 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 and racism. And <laughs> yeah, see, you're, you're clearly a better person than I am. It was, mine was all probably <laughs> you're, like, I'm, you're just looking in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was looking in the mirror while writing poetry about me. <laughs> no, when I got older, of course, when I became interested in boys, you know, forget it. It was all romantic poetry you know, you did this to me. You hurt me. You don't love me. You don't see me. Um, kind you still, of do, you still, do you still have it? 
I have a lot of, I have, my father cataloged everything, and this was one of his great gifts. My father died in 2009, oh, and the sorry. book is dedicated to him. Schroeder is very, very much informed by my father's death and by our relationship. Um, which, was, and, which was good? Which was very good, and partially why, you know, I noticed some people, of course, you know, have some kind of skepticism about a father-daughter story. Uh, like there's some inherent you know, danger in it. Um, but I don't feel that way, so that's not in Schroeder. You know, um, obviously, he's, Eric is dangerous because he's doing something um, illegal, and he's also, um, you know, he, he he's, can be very irresponsible. But I, I kind of, for me, speaking just personally, I believe that the father-daughter bond can be very healthy and, and good. Um, so yeah, my dad, my dad cataloged all of my writing and he, he was really my, um, my editor and my, um, manager. We started to send that, well, he started to send my poems off when I was only eight or nine and I got a bunch of things published and he helped me publish a book. And we even went like on the road and, 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 and <laughs> with a suitcase and a um, slide and a slide projector and, you know, went and I went and spoke to, um, elementary school kids about what it was like to be a poet, a published poet. Oh my God. So, so you, were, you were like groomed for this. This was, you, you're born to this. Yep. And you, but you know, <laughs> but the thing about it too, is that like, it's good. Cause like people are, you know, not people always ask me, but sometimes it comes up like, what are you going to do like about your kid and how are you going to uh, nurture them in terms of their interests and eventually their professional interests in college? And yeah, yeah. I think like as a parent, you know, you sort of have to let the kid lead. And if you see your daughter or your son really interested in something, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to push that, you know, like because uh, they've already expressed interest in it. Not that you push them so hard that they go crazy, but you, you know right. what I'm saying? Like you, you, I think it's like what your dad did sounds cool. He's like, oh, she likes to write. Like, let me, let's, let's go with this. Well, as he was um, dying, he he had cancer and was here in Amherst at a hospice home for six months, actually, before he died. I made sure to ask him all sorts of questions. And one was, you know, did you push me? Like, am I just a writer because you made me <laughs> be a writer? And he said his answer was, God, no. You, you, I, I did everything I could just to keep up with you. You just gave me all at the end of every day. You give me a bunch of poems and I could barely, barely type them up. Wow. And it meant a lot to me that, you know, of course, he'd leave me with that so that I didn't have to worry that I was just trying to <laughs> right. trying to do what he wanted, had wanted and failed to do, um, as, you know, many people do want to write a book or something. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was it was a uh, it was and certainly in terms of going on the road and talking to people, it, it was professional training. But, um, you know, I it helped what that helped me learn how to do was to take take things in stride, the, both the praise and the criticism, because I got praise and I got people telling me, oh, this is wonderful and this is great. And I kind of learned to to keep a kind of very inner private place where even that praise didn't, didn't reach. Even and, as, a, as a kid, you did this. Yeah. That's, that's well, unusual. I, I mean, I think I had, a, well, that's an unusual childhood too, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, I can't say, I can't say I would have been aware aware of doing that. Um, I think I just did that because um, I was also still just a kid. So you go you go around and you, you people are listening to you and paying you um, small amounts of money to come and talk to them, and and then you go back to high school 
and sit in the cafeteria with that stinky food, right, with no one to sit next to. So, you know, there I was both. I was both like, somebody you're sitting there alone in your cafeteria, just like you don't. You guys don't realize I'm huge at. <laughs> Such and I'm such huge a, yeah. at Pine Hills Elementary. <laughs> right, right. They love me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, because that wasn't really a consolation. I mean, I I was sufficiently humbled by my by my real worldly existence that I didn't, you know, um, the praise. It was it was nice, but I didn't I didn't lean on it or believe in it too much. I was just trying to get through high school basically, and. Um, I also knew that while I, some people thought I had talent, that I had a really long way to go, you know? So once I started to read, I realized how much better I wanted to be than I was and how much further I had to go. So, uh, where'd you, you know, go, where'd you go to college? I went to, I went to Brown and, um, loved it, loved it there. And, um, so many writers, it's, it feels like so many writers go to, like so many successful writers go to Brown. Really? I don't know. <laughs> I know, you, you, what is it, Eugenides, Rick Moody, that, those are pretty big writers. David um, Shields went to Brown. Oh, of course. About, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, I loved his reality hunger. It was very controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, just, great. it feels like it, I don't know, Brown feels like it produced. Maybe my daughter should go to Brown. I should try to get her to go. She She should. She should. She can go meet her husband there. No, I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. No, no. Um, we'll although that. I met mine there, so I'm I'm not totally kidding. But um, I loved it. It was exper- It was very experimental and feeling. I mean, I guess you know that, but um, it's really true. You know, I did a lot of. I studied a lot of theater, and that's where I saw it the most. Though, uh, of course, all the writers there are totally experimental. I didn't study with Coover, but I, you know, he's there, and and all of the other disciples there were very much into experimentation and innovation but in theater i saw it a lot and um, i remember one of my assignments in a theater class was to stage a nightmare and and it was the most it really stuck with me and i was supposed to stage and so i was supposed to come in and reproduce a nightmare on the stage <laughs> and it was and what i did was I remember the professor, I had like carnival music and people running around and screaming. And he was like, that's so literal. He's like, you couldn't do something, something more nightmarish than a real nightmare. And um, I, I just really stuck with me. You, it was, you, I was always being pushed to do something like genuinely experimental rather than with the patina of experimentation. Right. Um, there's, so, yeah, there's almost like there's almost like rote experimentation, you know. Where it's like oh, totally. It, just because it's experimental doesn't mean it's good. Like, let's definitely get that out of the way. Right. There's some really bad stuff, and there is all. There also are cliches of experimentalism, you know. So that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Exactly. It's like, like, the, like the shaky handheld camera and like the, the <laughs> like the fast exactly. cuts and like the switch to black and white from color. Ex- exactly. The bad poetry in the background and. Yes, I mean, there's this in, in the theater and in fiction. There's there's cliches of of experimentation. So, um, yeah, and then I went to Iowa for my MFA, which which was such a, a, a also a, is a more conventional by the book um, tradition. So Iowa Writers sort of Workshop. Iowa Writers Workshop. Sorry. See, that's the track. You go to Brown, and then you go to Iowa. Like this is. Oh really? I don't know. Oh, that's a good. That's a good it, academic. Credential. It is now. It yeah. is now. Right. right. <laughs> Um, I, and so, so if I could like say that at Brown, I learned to loosen up or, or to go to, to sort of try to bravely go to new places, at least, um, formally, then at, at Iowa, I was, I had to learn to give that 
better form and structure and and thought and 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 of course Frank Conroy was there and his whole thing was you know think about the reader you know at Brown it was like don't think about the reader (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I went to two places that were totally different on that level and that, that was truly good for me yeah, because I, went, I had that, I mean, yeah. not exactly the same, but I had similar. Like, I went to Colorado and went to film school, which was like Stan Brackage, experimental, uh-huh. like super, super out there filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And then, right. you know, then you start to write and, you know, you start to realize that someone might actually read it. And that's nice to remember. <laughs> it is nice to remember. It It is. I, if I could pick the trajectory, I would definitely choose to start the way you and I did, though, because... I think it's best to to start with that sense of fun and 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 um yeah like exploration and then you can bring it back bring it back into the realm of the sensible you know later on because you can learn to be sensible right. um you know so Iowa really helped my work too I I came there I wrote these really um dense um poetic short stories that just weren't explained and they were uh, like not I don't want to say like poetry but it was heavy with dialogue and concept and I learned how to um, to spread them out more and I really needed to learn how to do that and certainly in order to write a novel yeah because you can't write these miniaturist little things and write a novel so well and who are you did you have any classmates who've gone on to publication I mean Iowa tends to breed like a lot of publishing success like were you in, in class with some good writers yeah I was I had such such great writers in my class and, and or the class right after um, Adam Hazlett, who's a, a dear friend of mine now. Um, he's, of course, the author of Union Atlantic and You're Not a Stranger Here. Um, Salvatore Scabona, who was na- nominated for the National Book Award a couple years ago for his book, The End. My other great friend, Sarah Shenlian Bynum, um, also a National Book Award. Um, um, and ZZ Packer was there at the same in my class. Um, there's, there's many, there's others uh, too that are still working and publishing and, uh, it's less well known, but seriously talented people. So I, you know, and was it a good, I mean, was it a good workshop experience? Cause I've had plenty of writers on this show that have done their time at Iowa and some have glowing things to say. Others are like, Oh my God, get me out of there. <laughs> you know, was it, was it a brutal workshop, like really competitive? And did you feel like a lot of tension or was it more nurturing than that for you? Well, no, it wasn't nurturing. But see, this is the difference of starting writing when you're six. You know, like if you're if you're like, um, you know, writing at six and you know, going, giving a lecture to elementary school students when you're 16. You know, by the time you get to the workshop, you're kind of used to getting being exposed. Right. You know, which is really what's so uncomfortable about that place because they're exposed and they're you're explicitly measured against each other. And also, there's just so many people. It's a pretty big program, so there's an audience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when yeah. you fail or you succeed, there's like a lot of people to to talk about it. <laughs> um, you know, but I I came with a pretty uh, a sense of having gone through a lot of that already, and that really helped me a lot. I was also so grateful to be there. I had worked in publishing for a couple years before I went there. I wasn't. I was so young, but I felt like I was had a couple years under my belt, and. Um, I, um, well, I guess I, you were like an editorial assistant. I was an editorial assistant at St. Martin's Press, and my boss was just the kindest person. But of course, it's still just an editorial position where you're basically meant to run up and down with files and, you know, um, try to try to 
dress nicely for the first time in your life. It's just all kind of humiliating. Yeah. <laughs> so. on, like, on like a salary that like barely allows you to eat. You know? <laughs> on a salary once. I, I met my sister for lunch, for lunch. She lives in New York. And I raised my hand to wave and realized I had a big um, rip under my blouse that the arm is like the Salvation Army blouse. <laughs> um, you know, that, that stuck with me. Um, so I was glad to... I was glad to go back to school by that point right. and to and to kind of um, let myself be a writer. And I was very grateful all the time I was there. Yeah, that's nice. And I, I loved Frank. I mean, he didn't he, he didn't like my stuff at all, but I didn't care because he was really he was very passionate. I thought he was respectful. And um, since I went on to do creative writing teaching myself, I really still do use some of his ideas. Like what? Like what are some of the traditions of that? So program? he has like this reader writer arc. You know, we were just saying you want to think about the reader, and the writer's on one side of the arc, and the reader's on the other side. And he just talks about the dynamic between the reader and the writer, and explained it in a way that it's not prescriptive. It doesn't say that you have to do X, Y, or Z for the reader. I mean, he acknowledged that every reader was different and every writer was different, but it's just something about the relationship between the two and how they. Um, how a writer has her assumptions and the reader has his assumptions and they sort of have to meet somewhere. And, um, I still bring that up. I still talk about that. Mm. And so I got to ask you about your name because it's such a great name. Like where does the name Amity come from? Amity means friendship. Um, and so my mother, I think it was mostly my mom wanted to name me that because she liked the name, the, the, the meaning of the name. And I was just talking about it with someone else recently. And, uh, I was like, oh, thank God she didn't name me, you know, Cruelty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you could have gotten it much worse. That's a beautiful name. And so uh, we didn't talk about your mother, but was she writerly or anything like that? No, no. She's a great reader. She's very smart. She's still living. She just traveled with me and the baby to San Francisco for book stuff. We've been traveling her everywhere with the baby, too. Um, She's uh, a a big influence on my life, but not a literary one. Um, And... uh, She's yeah, she's really she's into the book. Uh, she's 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 out there now trying to trying to get people to buy it. I was gonna say <laughs> she's she's essentially your publicist now. That's what's happening. <laughs> you would be surprised how many people have emailed me um, in the recent months, being like, "I knew your mother. I knew your father." <laughs> I'm, I'm Facebook friends with your mother, and she keeps insisting. She keeps linking to reviews. <laughs> it's sweet. It's it's uh, the publication sometimes really reconnects you to to people. So some of them you don't remember whatsoever, but that's cool. <laughs> so do you do you have a sense? I mean, I guess your your daughter's really young, so you can't tell yet. But with your son, do you sense any kind of writerly gene passed along, or is he more? Wow. Right now, he. Um... I mean, if he's not touring, like giving speeches within the next three years, I'm going to be very disappointed in you. <laughs> I really wanted to get him into tennis. I mean, I always wanted to be a great tennis player. Well, no, I didn't always want to be a great tennis player. When I turned, uh, gosh, in my late 20s, I took up tennis. And I was like, God, if I had only started this when I was six, I'd be, oh, my God, I'd be famous. I'd be, you know. Um, are, you a good and, a- are you a good athlete? I'm pretty good. I got some big shoulders, I you know. know. Just uh, Writers aren't often, you know, great. I love it. No, I love it. And I love watching sports. I love talking about it. It's a huge diversion, and it's somewhere to put my obsessive energy. Tennis. I know DFW was really into tennis, too. I could well, totally, I mean, writing in tennis, to me, makes a lot of sense. But he anyway. wrote, Didn't he write a Federer essay? And then he also wrote about, um, God, I'm going to forget her name. She was like a tennis sensation 
back when we were younger. Oh, Tracy, I know. Uh, Tracy Austin. Tracy Austin. Oh, right. Of course. You know, I've got to read his tennis writing. I do. Yeah, it's good. Um, I know he was very good, but um, no, I'm not very good. But I could have been a contender. <laughs> I, could, I could have been good. <laughs> it is now on the record that Amity Gage could have been a tennis superstar had she not turned to poetry. <laughs> Poetry ruined my life. Poetry ruined your otherwise... <laughs> my tennis career. Your se- no. consecutive Wimbledon titles. <laughs> so I was hoping my son would be into tennis. Right now, all he's into is Pokemon and um, Angry Birds oh and this God. new video game, Minecraft. He wants to design video games. This is another moment where you have to be like, okay, this is what my child is into. I have to really try to... <laughs> well, but hey, listen, I'm, I'm like, there was just an article about this that I read recently where it's like, I want to say Tom Bazell. Or somebody like some, sure, I love his stuff. Yeah, somebody yeah. like literary standing just developed a video game and like was in, responsible for the narrative. And so like your son might be expressing writerly narrative uh, tendencies through his love of video games because these things are getting so sophisticated. It's like you live inside a movie. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, I'm they not, are. I don't play them because I I just I mean that's the la- I mean that's the last thing I need is something like that to suck me in because mm, uh, you, totally. never, you never see me again. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, but yeah. you know. Who knows what narrative forms will be uh, in twenty years? You know, you make a you make a really good point, and I could totally see him doing something like that. Whatever it is, it's, I'm very always very humbled as a writer when I talk to him about my writing because he has almost no interest. <laughs> you know, he's just when there was a Janet Maslin reviewed Schroeder in February, and it was a beautiful review, and I I wanted to um, go to the the convenience store. And get buy a copy of the paper. I, know, thought, the I thought you were going to say I wanted to go to Janet Maslin's house. I don't know why that. I thought you were going to say that, but you didn't. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't, man. Can you re- can you revoke a review? <laughs> I just want to hug Janet. I just want to hug. I just want to hug. I love you. I love you. No, I mean, of course, it's Janet Maslin. So I wanted to I wanted to go buy a print copies. So I said to my son, um, you, I'm, we're going heading to school. I said, we'll just stop at the convenience store. I want to buy the New York Times. And he was like, I'll be late for school. I said, well, I've got a review in there. I really want to buy it. And he said, oh, Mommy, I don't even know what the New York Times are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny so that you cute. say that because, like, the other day I was, uh, was re- you know, again, like, flipping around online and I saw – uh, is that how you say it now? Flipping around online? I was clicking around. I don't think so. <laughs> it sounds like something my mother would say. I was flipping on the internet. <laughs> on the interweb. Yeah. And so I'm flipping around on the interweb, and uh, I see a story about John Bon Jovi's daughter, because I guess she had like a near heroin overdose or something. That's right. So, I saw that. Of course, I click on this, and I see this like family photo of the Bon Jovis, and it's like a lovely family or whatever. But I was thinking to myself, like, oh my god, he's got kids, and like he's a rock star, but yet his kids like a don't give a shit, and then b probably think his music is lame. Or like yeah, I'm sure they, they like it because it's like, oh, that's dad. That's his nice thing. But it's like, imagine like it's one thing to be a writer and to have some success and then have your kids show no interest. But like, imagine being a rock star where like you're going into stadiums and people are like screaming your name. And then you, it must be the the great equalizer to have kids who are like, whatever, dad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I remember like Bruce Springsteen saying something like that too. Oh, you know, I don't know. I think basically it just neutralizes everything you do, right? Well, I, I was going to just... say that you almost, you almost like rock stars almost sh- they have to have kids, otherwise they'll go completely off the rails in terms exactly. of exactly with a check to your ego. Oh, kids really are so humbling. Yeah, thank <laughs> God. I can't wait for my daughter to start taking me down a peg. She already does. Like, 
Does she? Yeah. She's like, not too young. How old is she? Like two and a half. But it's oh, like, yeah. It's like little things where uh, the other day I was like, come give daddy a hug. And she looked at me like really seriously. And she's like, I can't right now, dad. I have to scratch my leg. And she like, <laughs> then proceeded to roll up her pant leg and scratch her leg for like. You know, Languorously. Yes. And I was like, wow, this is how it begins. <laughs> like she's already like finding ways to avoid yep. me and not make time. You know, so I guess that's, I guess that's what I have to look forward to. <laughs> Um, so, you love them anyway. Yeah. So, uh, last question, because I know you have yeah. to get rolling. Uh, you know, we just talked about looking forward to stuff. Like, uh, first of all, Schroeder seems fairly cinematic to me. Any movie stuff happening with it? I wish. I keep waiting for someone to snap it up. Um, it seems like, I know what. It seems like it should happen. I think so too. Well, you could tell your friends, well, tell your fancy friends out making, there in LA. We're making a podcast. If anyone's listening, please write a large check to Option. <laughs> for the, It'd for the, make a great movie. Um, and then, secondly, like, are you know, are you working on anything new? Do you have a vision? Do you have like a broad, long-term vision for your publishing future? Or are you like one foot in front of the other type person? Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. I mean. Um, I think my broad term, my broad or long term vision is just to be able to still enjoy it, you know, to be work, to work on something that I feel is, is real and satisfying and cathartic to write. I don't want to write a book that just because I can or I don't know. I, I want to be able to throughout, you know, the rest of my life, I guess, um, to enjoy the work itself. That's hard. Yeah. It is hard. Especially, and, and especially now that there might be expectations and, you know, the more that you have success, the more people are expecting to an extent. So you have to sort of manage that too. I guess I will. I haven't, I haven't been, I haven't gotten there yet because, you know, I've, I've had a couple critically successful, but small kind of novels and, and it's true. I've not tried to write with any kind of sense that there's a pressure or, um, we'll see how that goes down. Um, I know that I have to wait a little while before I approach anything because, oh my God, your ego gets just so excited by all of this feedback that, um, you can't, it's not a good space to write in, that's you know? A, you know what? That's, that, I think that's the first time anyone said that with that much clarity on this show, but it's very, oh, really? well, just like regardless, I mean, when the book comes out, when anyone's book comes out, regardless of what happens almost, you're in this weird fever. Yeah. Uh, like checking mm -hmm. Amazon rankings, and looking at like <laughs> right. Facebook links and, you know, it's, it's hard not to Google yourself and, you know, it's like all that stuff mm -hmm. is happening and, um, mm -hmm. that can be a disaster for creativity. So it's probably smart to just let yourself have that time. And then once everything sort of gets quiet again, go back. Absolutely. And I totally will have to go offline because it's antithetical to that writing space, you know, and I can't do that right now. And I don't want to, you know, I've also, I've also got, I've also got the baby. So the timing is pretty nice that I can, I can be with her and hold her, you know, and just wait for the next idea. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best with it. Congrats on this book, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Brad. Thank you. Okay, everybody, there you have it. That is Amity Gage. You can find her online at amitygage.com, or you can track her down on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app, if you haven't done that already. It is available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android 
device, and once again, it's free. Please remember also to rate and review the show over at iTunes. It takes two minutes, and it really does help the cause. And if you have any thoughts about the program and you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, okay, so I think that's it. It was great to talk with Amity. It's great to be with you all. Uh, I'm now imagining us as a giant family of meerkats. I feel as if we were all small furry mammals on the jungle floor, and we are in danger of being fed upon by large predators. Please remember that Emmanuel Kant's father was a saddle maker and that the word nihilism was coined by Ivan Turgenev. That is it for now. I'll be back in just a few days on Sunday with another episode, another author, another conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a nice day. Uh, Don't spend too much time online. Don't uh, text while driving. Don't worry too much about things you can't control. Uh, Please remember to breathe deeply and to think uh, globally, but to act locally. Is that how you say it? Is that the bumper sticker? Is that uh, the situation? (laughs) 